Tonight, I'd like to start by introducing you to someone. I think we have a slide here. We have a picture of Dr. Heather Bradshaw. She earned both her Bachelor's of Science degree and her PhD from Florida State University. And she currently serves as Assistant Professor of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Indiana University. She's in the process of studying the role of hormones in neural response and other chemical signaling mechanisms, whatever that means. A couple weeks ago, Dr. Bradshaw was traveling from Indiana University to Hebrew University in Jerusalem because she was going to speak at a conference. She'd already traveled to Israel, to Jerusalem, three times, so uh, she knew what to expect from the trip. But this time, her trip was different. She arrived at Luton Airport in London because she had to change planes so she could travel onto Jerusalem using El Al Airlines. So she attempted to pass through security so she could board her next flight, and she was detained with uh, little explanation. They didn't tell her what was going on. They just led her to a room. And then uh, she presented them with her passport showing, you know, I've been to Jerusalem three times before. There shouldn't be a problem with me visiting. Here's the proof that I'm teaching at this conference. She had all these things saying, this is who I am, and this is where I'm going, and this is what I'm doing. But security didn't believe any of it. Uh, they took her in this room. They took all her belongings, and then they went through her luggage. And with every single item, they asked her, what, what is this? Why do you have it? What is it for? And most of these items were books on uh, neurosciences, so you know, obviously she couldn't use them for anything sinister. Uh, after she was interrogated, the security personnel even searched her person. So uh, they made her disrobe, they searched her, checking her to make sure she didn't have any things that she wasn't supposed to have. Um, after being detained for nearly an hour, they let her go, they let her get on her flight with her passport and three credit cards, but nothing else. She didn't have any explanation for what was going on. Uh, she was upset, she was confused, and she had no idea what was happening. She had traveled to Israel three times before, and she didn't know why this time was so different. You see, she doesn't know, or she didn't know then what she knows now. Now she knows that there's another Heather Bradshaw out there. This other Heather Bradshaw is a pro-Iran activist. So this Dr. Heather Bradshaw was treated like a terrorist because there is a terrorist out there named Heather Bradshaw. So she was detained, she was searched, she was humiliated because of what somebody else had done in her name. We've seen a similar thing happen in Israel. The Lord places his name on his people. He's known as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. He's known as the God of Israel. So when they do things because of his relationship with his people, the nations view God like they view his people. Last week, we left Israel at their lowest point. Uh, they had disobeyed to the point that God raised up another nation to come in and punish them. Uh, their city was destroyed, the walls were broken down, and the temple was destroyed. The nations think that they have conquered Israel's God because they've conquered Israel. Now these people are exiled in Babylon, and they're trying to go about their lives in this foreign land. In the eyes of Babylon, in the eyes of these other nations, they haven't just conquered Israel. They've also conquered Yahweh. So this is the situation of tonight's text. Uh, we see it, we see in this text the Lord's plan for vindicating his name. His name has been defamed among the nations because of what Israel has done, because he had to punish them for their disobedience. So he, this text shows us his plan for how he's going to make things right. 
Uh, let's go ahead and read the text, and then we'll jump into it. If you haven't already turned there, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. Um, basically, just hit the Psalms and turn right. If you uh, don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of the rows, and you'll find tonight's passage on page 724. We're going to read verses 22 through 38. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On that day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord, I have rebuilt the ruined places and have replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. We're going to do something a bit unconventional with this text. Uh, next week, Jerry is going to preach the same exact passage. And uh, our goal is to look at the text from two different angles, and we hope that it won't just be incredibly confusing to you guys. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at this passage from the perspective of Israel in exile. So we're going to try to look at the text and see how they would have seen this text, to view it how they would have viewed these promises that God is giving them. And then next week, uh, Jerry is going to look at the specifics of how these promises are fulfilled when they get back in the land. So tonight we're just going to kind of look at the broad themes that are overarching in the passage, and then next week Jerry's going to get into the specifics of how all of it's worked out. And uh, if it's really confusing, I can just blame it on him because he's going after me. So let's try to put ourselves in Israel's shoes. Last week we saw the king get killed, uh, the city get destroyed, the walls are broken down, 
the temple is destroyed, and then all the people are carried off in chains to Babylon. Now they're living as exiles in Babylon. They're trying to go about their lives in this foreign land, and they have this promise, this prophecy from Ezekiel saying that the Lord is going to do these things to vindicate his name among the nations. In fact, that's the main point of tonight's text, that the Lord will vindicate his name among the nations. Now, the, the passage kind of cycles back and forth between these two things of the Lord saying why he's going to act and then what it is that he's going to do. The main concepts of the passage are all uh, presented in the first cycle, verses 22 through 32. The rest of them are just kind of unpacking that and giving further explanation. So these, this first, verses 22 through 32, are what we're going to focus on tonight because those contain the big ideas. So let's look at what he says in the first part, in verses 22 through 23. He says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So the key points here are that the Lord's name has been profaned among the nations, the second thing is that it's Israel. They're the ones who have defamed his name among the nations. And the third thing is that the Lord is going to vindicate his name through Israel. So he's going to work in them to restore his name in the eyes of the nations. Because the nations connect Yahweh with his people, the way they view his name is the way they view his people. So if his people are in exile, they think that they've conquered their God. So in order to restore his name in the eyes of the, the people, he has to restore Israel. I think the question for us is, uh, do we care this much about God's name? I mean, God goes to great lengths in this passage and in the rest of the Old Testament to vindicate his name before the nations. Do we care this much about it? Uh, I can't remember if what I'm about to say I heard from a seminary professor or a stand-up comedian. And... I don't really know what that means, but uh, I think that there's a lot of truth in it. And that's that uh, whoever it was, they were talking about how you never hear people use the names of false gods as expletives. If you're with somebody and they hit their thumb with a hammer, they never say, uh, they never curse Allah or Buddha or Krishna or some other false god. I mean, think about it. Have you ever heard somebody do that? Have you ever heard somebody curse a false god in the way that they'll curse Christ or God or uh, I guess people don't really curse the Holy Spirit. You know, we probably have never heard that. And, and why is that? What do you think that means? I mean, it could just mean that the culture we live in, it's commonplace for people to curse Christ or to curse God. I mean, I think that there's a little bit of truth to that. I mean, people have just done it. We've seen our, our grandfathers and they saw their grandfathers do it. And so that's why it happens to us. But I think that there's more to it. I think that instinctively, people know that there is power in the name of the one true God. I think that the enemy knows that he gains victory over people when he gets them to curse the name of the one true God. People don't curse false gods because they're false gods. People curse God because they're actually cursing something. So how do we respond when people do this? How do we respond when people curse God or curse Christ? I think that that's an important question to answer, but before we can answer that question, we have to ask, do we do it? 
do we ever malign the name of God or malign the name of Christ? You see, just like Israel was known as the children of God, we're known as Christians. We're known as followers of Christ. Whatever we do or don't do reflects Christ to the lost world around us. All of our lives we've heard that to be a Christian means to be Christ-like. That's what the word means. The word means Christ-like. But I think that the like part of that is a little soft. You see, that can mean a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people. It can vary in degrees. We can say, well, today I'm more Christ-like than I was yesterday, and tomorrow I might be less Christ-like than I was today. Um, check out what the, one of the earliest Christians said about the word. There's this guy named Ignatius, who's a disciple of the Apostle John, and he wrote a series of letters on his way to Rome to be martyred. So in his letter to the Church of Magnesia, he says, it's fitting then not only to be called Christians, but to be so in reality. This was written by a man who had so fully identified with Christ that he was on his way to Rome, bound in chains to be martyred for the gospel. He knew what it meant to be Christ-like in every area, in life and in death. Even today, all over the world, to be Christian means to be marked for death. But here in America, we give up the title Christian whenever it's inconvenient. To be Christian means that we fully identify with him in everything. It means that we surrender all that we are for the name of Christ. And to do anything short of that defames his name. So before we can criticize other people for defaming his name, I think we have to be honest about the fact that we do it in our own lives. The Jews had the same problem that we have. They wanted all the benefits of being the children of God without any of the inconvenience. And we saw last week how that worked out for them. God raised up another nation to nearly wipe them out. But tonight, they receive his promise of restoration, not because of anything that they've done, not because they've earned it, but because God desires to vindicate his name in the eyes of the nations. We're going to see that the Lord is going to do this by two ways. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to bring his people back to the land. The second thing he's going to do is he's going to help them stay in the land once he's brought them back. Let's look at the first one. He's going to bring them back to the land. The land has been an important thing for Israel all the way back since Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God said I'm, to Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you a land. Then later he explained that the people are going to be prisoners in Egypt. And then one day God is going to intervene, he's going to redeem them, he's going to bring them out of Egypt into the land that he promised them. This is 400 years later. God brought them into the land by orchestrating the exodus and this became, the Exodus became the single most important redemptive event in Israel's history. It was this huge thing that he did for his people, and his people saw it as that. Now, Ezekiel tells Israel, he tells God's people, that the Lord is going to bring them back to the land again, because they've been exiled from it. We see this in verses 24 and 28. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And then verse 28, he says, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel here is picking up a promise that the prophet Isaiah made that there was going to be a new exodus. Uh, this is kind of a little confusing to us because exodus means uh, departure or exit. So 
we view a lot of times the exodus as the people going out of the land, but really for Israel, they're being exodused into the land. So the Lord is saying, I'm going to do another exodus. I'm going to do what I did for you in Egypt and bring you from Babylon back to the land. But here's where the problem is. See, before uh, Israel got in the land, they did everything that the Lord said they were going to do. They disobeyed, they committed idolatry, they forsook the name of God, and because of that, he had to take them out of the land. Over and over, time after time after time, we've seen God work and move in their midst, and then quickly after that, the people disobey. So if they're going to come back to the land, God is going to have to do something different to help them stay in the land, or this whole cycle is going to repeat itself. And then there's going to be more books and more prophets, and God's going to have to say, I'm going to bring you back to the land again for a third time. But he's saying, I'm going to do something different. This is where the second part of the promise comes in. Uh, He's promised that he'll bring them back to the land. He's promised that there's going to be a new exodus. And if you remember, after the first exodus, uh, Israel was at Mount Sinai, and God gave them a covenant with Moses. So the Lord's saying, I'm going to give you a new covenant. Just like I gave you the first one, I'm going to give you a new one, and it's going to be better. This new covenant is going to give the people the ability to keep God's commands. This is the huge difference between the covenant he made with Moses and the covenant that he's going to make with his people once they get back to the land. Listen to what he promises in verses 25 through 30. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. So the Lord is saying here that he's going to give them everything that he promised to give to Abraham, only he's going to give them this new thing. He's going to give them the ability to keep his commands. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is God's answer to their obedience problem, or I guess their their disobedience problem. All along, God has been after their hearts. He hasn't just wanted their outward obedience to his rules and regulations. Instead, he's wanted to see their hearts desire to obey him and their hearts wholly devoted to him. And he says that he's finally going to give them what they need. He's going to replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He's going to give them his spirit so that they'll finally be able to do what he requires. They'll finally be able to give him the God-honoring, heartfelt obedience that he deserves. And just in case they've forgotten why it is that he's going to act, he reminds them in verses 31 and 32. He says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. The Lord tells them that his actions serve to remind them of what they've done. They don't deserve what he's going to do. They haven't done anything to earn it. He's doing it so that he can vindicate his name in the eyes of the nations. 
As I said at the beginning, we're going to try to view this passage from the point of view of Israel in exile. It's, it's really hard because there's a whole lot of great stuff here that they find out when they get back. But we're going to try to look at it just from their perspective in exile. Their city's been destroyed. They've been taken in chains to a foreign land, and their enemy claims that they haven't just conquered Israel. They've also conquered Israel's God by destroying his temple. Israel has very little reason to hope at this point. They don't have anything good going for them. Maybe tonight you're in a similar situation. You're not sure what the future holds, or maybe you feel like God's uh, neglected his promise to you in some way. Maybe you're tired of fighting a specific sin or you're not looking forward to the holiday season or spending time with family or at home. Maybe you're facing the hardest thing you've ever faced in your life or maybe this week is just going to be a normal week for you and and that stresses you out. No matter what you're facing, the message of this text for Israel is the same for them as it is for us. And that's that if God's glory is our highest priority, we won't ever be disappointed. This text tells us that God will stop at nothing to vindicate his name among the nations. If we're seeking the same thing, if we're seeking his glory above all else, we're going to always have reason to rejoice. God is going to vindicate his name. Our problem is that we want him to vindicate our name. We want God to show our friends or our families how great we are. We want God to show us how great we're going to be in the future. We want God to do this or that or fill in the blank. We want him to do it for us, for our name. If you remember way back in Genesis 11, I think we were there like two months ago, at the Tower of Babel, the people conspired together against God and they said, we're going to make a name for ourselves. God confused their language and scattered them across the earth. And in the very next chapter, in Genesis 12, he calls Abram and he says, I'm going to make a great name for you. And then the rest of the Old Testament from that point on is about God bringing his promise to pass through Abraham and his descendants. Abram's name was made great because of his relationship to God. Israel became a great nation because of their relationship to God. The only reason they weren't completely wiped out was because he had placed his name on them. God does vindicate his name. He does bring his people back. He does give them a new covenant. But for now, Israel is in exile. They're guilty of maligning the name of their God. They're guilty of disobedience and sin and idolatry. But they can have hope because God is going to vindicate his name. He's going to bring them back. And if what is most important to him, his name, is most important to them, they won't be disappointed. We too are in exile. We've all been guilty of sin and disobedience and idolatry. We've all maligned the name of Christ that we bear. And like them, we're waiting for Christ to return. We're waiting for him to vindicate his name and take us to the land that he's prepared for us. And just like them, we can have confidence that he's going to vindicate his name. The Apostle Paul tells us that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is going to happen. The truth in this verse is going to come to pass. God is going to vindicate his name. If we seek God's glory above all else, if we desire that Christ's name would be made great and not ours, we're always going to have reasons to rejoice. We're never going to be disappointed because the Lord is going to vindicate his name. Let's pray.